This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This evening's show is a record breaker for Speaking of the Arts, at least, as we have the most ever guests squeezed into the next hour. Ten people representing nine arts organisations. I thought that as we are in the season of end of year donations, I would invite a handful of our hardworking, inspiring and dedicated arts leaders to give a six minute peek into what their organisation does. What are some of the moments of magic they've witnessed and what would they do with a $100,000 donation? Of course, there are so many more arts organisations doing stellar work and it would take a month of shows to chat with all of them. But I hope tonight's show will inspire you to think about supporting the arts and our own KOPN, of course, if and when you are able to make any end of year gifts. And so hold on to your hats. We've got nine visitors dropping into the Speaking of the Arts studio in the next 54 minutes. Good evening, Alex. Hello. Welcome to the reading nook. I thought we'd meet in the reading nook today of the Speaking of the Arts studio. So I have <laughs> festively festooned it with tinsel. Do you, do you think it's too much? No, I like what you've done with it all. It's, uh, it's very nice. <laughs> well, we have such a short time together today. So we will crack on. I asked you here today to talk specifically about the Unbound Book Festival, which is your non-profit organisation. So tell us a little bit about the organisation, its history and who it serves. So we began Unbound in 2016 and we have been going ever since. Usually it's the last weekend in April. Obviously, in 2020, with COVID, that didn't go so well. And in 2021, it was all online. But we've been going all that time. We, in regular times, invite authors and poets from across the country to come to Colombia. We usually have somewhere in the region of 50 to 60 people who come in and they give talks and presentations and readings and workshops It's completely free for everybody to attend. It takes place over a couple of days. The keynote always happens on Friday night at the Missouri Theatre. And we've had some incredible people in the past. We've had Salman Rushdie, Zadie Smith, George Saunders, Michael Odache. And last year we had Viet Tan win, the Pulitzer Prize winner. So it's a really, I hope, a wonderful weekend. And it's really just designed for everybody. You know, we... um, say that you know readings for everybody books are for everybody and we try and include in our programming a little bit of something for absolutely everyone and readers of all ages so tell me about a moment over those past last six seven years where you've really felt the magic of what unbound book festival does a moment that really stands out for you where you stood back and thought this is amazing Yeah, well, funnily enough, it's actually, it's a moment that I talk about a lot. It's an incredibly quiet moment. People are probably going to expect me to talk about some of these big events that we do. But it it was in the first year, and it was at the signing table, which at the time was at Stevens College in the ballroom. And we had this wonderful poet called Mark Doty, who's also a memoirist. And somebody went up to him with a book and asked him to sign it. And Mark said to the person, why this book in particular? And it was a book called Heaven's Coast, which is a memoir that Mark wrote about his partner who died of AIDS. 
so it was a, perhaps a slightly unusual book to choose. And the person said and explained that they had a family member who had recently passed away in an accident. They had a long conversation. And then Mark Doty didn't just sign his name. He wrote a two-page letter to the person involved who was uh, missing their partner. And it was such a wonderful example of the way that we are able to connect readers and writers in a completely magical way. And it's not always public. And it was one of those private moments that, you know, I think just meant a lot to everybody. And it's it was perfectly emblematic of what we try and do. I have to say that I met one of my best friends because of the Unbound Book Festival. Jocelyn Cullity oh, yeah. spoke a couple of years ago about historical fiction. And I reached out to her to have her come on the show. And we bonded straight away. So it is thanks to the Unbound Book Festival that I have a best friend. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. You know, Jocelyn's one She's actually coming back next year as well. Fantastic. So what would you do if a donor said, I would like to give you $100,000 for the organisation? How would you best spend that? (laughs) (laughs) I've got a long list. No, I mean, we are all volunteer at the moment and we have managed somehow to put this on every year without having a single paid member of staff. And with that kind of money, the first thing I would do would be to recruit somebody to run the thing and pay them a proper wage and just to get everything on a on a more uh, a more permanent footing I guess so it would be an unbelievable if anyone's listening uh, it would be an unbe- <laughs> unbelievable opportunity for us to change the way that we do things what are you looking forward to in the upcoming season? You've announced your keynote speakers and you're starting to populate the writers that are coming into the schedule. Do you have any big hopes for this year that you're hoping to get somebody or is that too soon to say that? Well, I mean, our keynotes are people that we have been hoping to get for a long time. I mean, I've asked Ross Gay to come to Unbound every year that we've done it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm absolutely thrilled that he's finally coming. And anybody who has read either of his, I mean, he's a wonderful, wonderful poet, but he's also written these two extraordinary collections of essays. And anybody who has read either of them will know about Pat Rosal because Pat is Ross's best friend and he appears in the pages of his of his essay collections and the two of them on stage i mean they are both phenomenal phenomenal poets but it's going to be uh it's going to be a keynote unlike any other it's not going to be moderated we're just going to set them loose and ross's books are about joy they're beautiful very thoughtful books about joy and uh pat is a, an extraordinary poet in his own right he actually came in 2016 and i think for many people redefined what a poetry reading looks like and sounds like because he performs with extraordinary gusto and uh, uh and so it's just it's going to be a wonderful evening and i simply cannot wait for that okay well that's it time up i'm gonna have to kick you out now for the next guest but thank you for sharing <laughs> a little bit about the unbound book festival and uh, we'll catch up again soon alex Thanks, Diana. Ayako Suruta, I am delighted to have you back 
in the studio again. I thought we would go to the music room today. And so I, I made some gingerbread, my French gingerbread cake, and I've got some mulled wine for you that I put it next to the piano. So I hope you'll enjoy that <laughs> during our time together today. <laughs> so we are here to talk about the Odyssey Chamber Music Series, which you founded almost 20 years ago. So tell us a little bit about the organization, your history in the community and who you serve. Yes, thank you for having me. My name is Ayako. I direct Odyssey Chamber Music Series, and we are in our 19th year performing in downtown First Baptist Church of Columbia. And we founded the organization in 2004 with our first concert, and we were under the sponsorship of the First Baptist Church until 2009 when we became an independent nonprofit. But the church loves the music, and we get along very well. So they have been hosting us for 19 years, which is amazing. And we serve mostly the Mid-Missouri area audiences. But given the event, we've had audiences travel from St. Louis, Kansas City, as far away as north of Iowa City. So it's been really uh, kind of all over the States. And it's mostly classical music. You've done some spirituals. It is all in the classical world, isn't it? Yes. So our programs are based in chamber music. But chamber music, we emphasize the communication between the musicians more. And therefore, when the quality performers come along, for example, Marcus Ruff, as I'm just using him as an example, came along and he pitched me the idea of doing a spiritual production. I said, my goodness, that sounds great. Run with it. And we had amazing performances with him along with Maya Gibson, Jolie Rock, and Brandon Boyd. And the quartet of these amazing people just gave all of their artistic talents. And it was just really fantastic to see them grow both the production and also all of us as people, as community. And I think music is more about the community as much as the art itself. And so the emphasis is more on the communication part. Right. Well, tell me about a moment that stands out for you over the past 19, 20 years, when you really felt the magic of what you do, where you saw the difference that you brought to a person's life? I would say that the thunderous applause that we get at the end of each performances, and I cannot say honestly, that would be the same for every concert. But there is that moment where there is that equal connection between the artist's satisfaction and the audience satisfaction. And I can actually hear the difference. And that's kind of a very special moment for me. What would you do if someone said, I would like to give Odyssey Chamber Music Series $100,000? How would that change you? What would that mean for you? That would be so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> because we were just talking about how we were going from 19th to the 20th season and we were talking about the, our dreams. And what I would really like to do is to raise our a fundraiser next year to something like $120,000. So it's kind of interesting that you're asking me this question now. <laughs> I would love to build an endowment so that there is that extra resource where we can draw from to pay for whatever the needs. But we are actually hoping to rent a room, for example, at the church and establish ourselves 
somebody concrete there in downtown. So there is a go-to person rather than working remotely, which is something we have done for, honestly, 19 years. And it's done well, but... I feel like there needs to be a better connection between the actual people who come to our our concerts and Odyssey. So there is that. And honestly, I think we use our resources very, very efficiently. And that $100,000 will go a long, long, long way. You are very careful with money. I know that. What has been the highlight of the past year for you? I would say there are many, but probably the evolution of the African-American spiritual, just because we have worked so hard on this project. It was supposed to be a three-year tripart production, and the pandemic hit, and we went through so many difficult uh, gauntlets just to make sure that the production maintained its quality, that it was produced at the time that audiences could participate. So it was really wonderful to see the event come to fruition. And this is the, also the interesting thing. The title itself has evolved. And when we first did this in 2016, Marcus Brough said, I've always known that this is a Negro spiritual, but I didn't feel right to be able to actually use that word in 2016. And so fast forward 2022, he submitted a program with Negro Spiritual on it. And I thought, wow, we're, we're coming home. That's really great. Right. Well, I would love to talk longer, Ayako, but unfortunately, um, the next person is waiting at the door. So I am going to have to show you up. But you can take the French gingerbread and the mulled wine with you. It's, it's fine. Oh, it's, it's for you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Ayako, thank you so much for all you do. And I will see you very soon. Thank you, Diana. Happy holidays. Matt, welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. As it is the holiday season, I did put lights out in the studio. So I've got those lights where you can have stylish, minimalist, all white or multicolored. So I can just go back and forth like this, like this. Do you want all white or do you want colored lights? Which one makes you feel more creative? I think colored is the way to go for Christmas. Okay, I'm just going to click them onto color. There we go. Okay, we are now fully bathed in lots of colour here in the Speaking of the Arts studio. So, Matt Schacht, I have asked you here today to tell us a little bit about Vidwest and its history in our community and and who you serve. Gosh, I talk about this a lot, Diana, so I always try to (laughs) moderate my answer within the person's attention span and our time limit. Let me just say that VidWest is a second-generation community media center in Columbia, Missouri. It was created out of the ashes of Columbia Access Television, which was the first-generation community media center. Community media is usually based around a specific platform. So at KOPN, you guys are based around radio. And historically, CAT was based around public access television, which was cable. Mm-hmm. And now the internet has blown all of that up and <laughs> we're all scrambling to find out how do we talk to each other and connect. And so VidWest is this eclectic assembly of different types of media ranging from audio to video to photo, even some live performances because we've got the space for that. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like you've really expanded it from the cat TV days. You brought in your background in film production. And it seems to me that I hear about lots of things going on at VidWest. So that was part of your mission to expand the offering. I would say mission. You could also say sense of survival as an organization. (laughs) Right. How true is that? So tell me about a moment that really stands out for you where you have stood back and thought, this is why I do what I do. This is the magic that we provide. I would say the magic comes when I see individuals or groups of people who would never talk to each other. They would never find themselves in the same space working together. And I see groups come together and then they get to learn and work together and enjoy each other's company and make media or art together. When that happens, I feel like the space is serving its highest purpose. Do you have a specific example of that that's happened in the last six months, say? Well, I remember the other day um, I walked into the studio and there was Josh Reynolds and Nick Danger rehearsing a rap in the floor space. And then, you know, around that same time, there's like film students kind of walking in and out, practicing, getting ready for a shoot. And then there might be somebody who walked in off the street who just wants a tour of the studio. And then they get to see some rappers rehearsing and some film students moving lights around. And I can see like this new person, the wheels in their brain spinning to try to understand like what's going on here and who are these people and what are the rules for this space and <laughs> why are they all here doing these things? And they, they can't put it together because it, it doesn't click with anything that I think people have seen before. So talking of survival, I mean, every nonprofit needs more money. But if you got a $100,000 donation, which I know would be absolutely life-changing for you, I mean, what would be your first thing you'd want to invest in? People, uh, people in education. I think that these organizations are as strong as the volunteers and instructors and administrators who run them. And so if we got a large grant, we would invest in how do we support the people who make this organization run. And then we would also think about how do we provide more free education to the community? What workshops can we host now that we have these funds to pay for instructors and and any equipment that they would need to to do their lessons. Are you a totally 100% volunteer run organization? Are there any paid staff? We have no regularly paid staff. Occasionally, we get a grant, which as you know, are hit or miss. Hmm. And if we get some funds from a grant, we might be able to basically give people an honorarium for a very limited amount of time based on the uh, conditions of a grant. So... Over the past year, what has been one of your favorite moments? Favorite? You mean like inspiring joy? Yes. (laughs) You know, I'm uh, I'm thankful when I get to walk into the studio each day and it's still there, that it hasn't been taken away from us, that we haven't lost it from just the wheel of fortune of the pandemic, landlords who control the space, the city of Columbia, which leases us a lot of the older cat equipment and which provides us a hefty portion of our operating budget to just pay for like utilities and and rent. Um, I'm thankful that all those things continue to be available to us. And and as is with human brains, you know, you look at something and, and you care about it and it brings you joy. And then 10 seconds later, you're just worried about losing it. And, and you're thinking about all of the, the holes in the ship you need to plug to, to keep things afloat. So it's, it's, it just seems like it's never a, 
a pure enjoyment of, of what we have, there's always the, uh, the other side of the coin. I think it must be a rare nonprofit that doesn't share those feelings with you on a daily basis. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for taking time to drop into the festive Speaking of the Arts studio this afternoon. <laughs> My pleasure, Diana. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Corey, welcome to the Speaking of the Arts studio. I think this is the first time you've been here in your current role as the executive director of the TRIPS Theatre Programme. So I did put out some eggnog for you. I hope you're an eggnog person. I love eggnog, yes. Okay, I put a little rum in it for you just you know, to Perfect. ease us along. So anyway, so that's there for you whenever you get thirsty. But tell us a little bit about TRIPS and its history here in the community and about the audiences and the, and the children that you serve. Absolutely. So TRIPS was founded in 1999 by our founding artistic director, Jill Womack, who just retired earlier this year. Over the years, we have offered programming for what we say cradle to college. We have started at as young as 10 months old, and we have served students all the way through their college experiences, both in the theater studies and not in theater programming. We were the first year-round full-time theater dedicated to young people in our community. So we are happy to be still kicking after 22 (laughs) years, if you will, and especially having pushed through and survived the COVID-19 pandemic and the shutdowns and the program impacts that happened with that. Am I right in thinking that you were a TRIPS kid back in the day or certainly have worked with the organization before, then went away and came back? Close. I was a TRIPS college student. So my first experience was when I was 19. Um, so I was a college student when I first discovered TRIPS. But shortly thereafter, I emailed Jill and said, I want to be you when I grow up. What do I do? And so <laughs> fast forward 18 years, and here we are. Here are. <laughs> so this question is going to be almost impossible, because I'm sure that every day that you are at TRIPS, there are many moments of magic. But when you think back, even when you were there as a college student and the last few months that you've been there officially as the executive director, is there a moment of magic that you thought, wow, this is why I do what I do? There are so many, but I will tell you about one that was really very recent. Um, Our fall production of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang Jr. featured a lot of brand new theater kids who didn't have the opportunity to get started when they were younger just because of COVID shutdowns. And there was one young actor in that show who found us this summer during summer camps and has jumped in both feet, absolutely fully submerged herself into the trips world. And it was her first main stage production. And on the very last day, we typically do kind of a focus circle before each performance. And on the last performance, the kids often will get a little sentimental. But this particular day, this particular student spoke to the entire room and the entire group about how she has never really felt at home. She has been bullied for her interests Hmm. kind of all through her childhood. She's in eighth grade this year. And... Trips was the first place that she felt like she could truly be herself and be loud and proud and weird and (laughs) not feel any shame for what she's interested in and for who she is. And those are the moments there have been so many kids who have said those words or some iteration of them over the years. And those are the moments that are the most impactful for us. We know, we know that we are changing lives of these young people every day, but to hear them acknowledge it and to say it and to get emotional about it 
is really life-changing and, and affirming. I wish I'd had a trips in my life as a youngster because I loved theatre, but there really wasn't anywhere to go and do it. So it's one of those interests that just fell by the wayside. So I love that you're here in the community. What would you do if a donor said, I want to give you $100,000? How would you what spend would it? What would we not do with $100,000 <laughs> really is the question. <laughs> There's a lot of things that we could do with it, certainly, but the dream would be to pour it right back into our programming and into the community and the, and the young people that we serve. One of my big dreams is to develop a professional touring company branch of this experience in this world and take shows with adult actors on the road and serve not only the kids in the immediate community in Columbia, but there are so many communities across the state that don't have the opportunity, just like you said, mm. don't have the experience and don't have the opportunity to engage in live theater. And so that's that's kind of a big a big dream for me is to to get us out there and to reach more young people both in and outside of our communities that just don't have the opportunity to experience this. What are you most looking forward to next year? I'm looking forward to so much. Our summer show I just was able to announce a couple of weeks ago is going to be your Good Man Charlie Brown, which is a brand new one for trips. We have never produced it before. It is such a fun show. It's so cute. Our young actors really love the opportunity to play little kids. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is a very different kind of theater. And so it's just a lot of fun and super engaging. And I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about how excited our kids are about it too. Perfect. Well, that is it. Time is up. I I hear the doorbell. So I'm going to have to ask you to take your eggnog and go and you can go and sit in the lounge and sip on it. You don't have to leave the speaking of the arts building. Corey Dunn, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Diana. Have a good one. Are we all hanging in there? Four down, five to go. Next stop, Talking Horse Productions. Well, first of all, I would like to say to both of you, Ed Hansen and Rashara Knight, welcome to the festooned Speaking of the Arts studio. I put the Christmas tree up in the corner and I've got the lights on it. I don't know, are you are you a white light person or a coloured light person, Ed? What about you? I'm a white light person myself. Rashara? Depends on my mood. (laughs) (laughs) I've got one of those switches I can toggle back and forth. So, you know, when you're answering, maybe I'll put them on the colored lights just because it's prettier, it's it's brighter. And then, Ed, I'll keep it simple for you and I'll just leave the white lights. (laughs) Nice. Simple as best. (laughs) So, Ed, (laughs) let's start with you. You founded the organization. You are today you are the president. You are no longer involved in the day to day running the organization. But tell us about why you founded Talking Horse all those years ago? I founded Talking Horse for a couple of reasons. One is that there wasn't a theater company that shared my vision of what I wanted to do with a theater company that was, you know, already set up in Columbia. And the other one was that I felt like I had had some good experiences and some bad experiences doing professional theater. And I wanted to take those good experiences and meld them into a a company that was kind of Uh, in my own vision. And so that's how Talking Horse came to be. And was that a decade ago, 12 years ago? I can't remember. It was a decade ago. We opened our first show in February of 2012. And Shara, you are the artistic director. So tell us a little bit about what the mission of the organization is today. Honestly, I don't think the mission has really too much changed since Ed was running all the things. But we are here to produce intimate character-driven plays and also wanting to develop new works. We're uh, 
We want to be there to help like illuminate social issues, produce challenging scripts within the black box space. So that way we are able to give everyone, like every role is a good role and every seat's a good seat. We just want to create those opportunities for emerging actors and directors and playwrights to really have that space to really hone in on their creative craft. So Shara, when you think back over the last few years that you've been involved with the organization as an actor and then a board member and and artistic director now, is there, well, I'm sure there is, choose a moment for me that really stands out where you thought, wow, this is why I'm involved with Talking Horse. This is the magic that Talking Horse brings to the community. Honestly, I think the one that comes up to me that's most recent happened just this past April during Fun Home where we had some younger actors in the show. And one of them, a young man by the name of Simon, I believe he's seven or eight. His mother had mentioned just that through his experience through the show, like he had learned skills that he hadn't yet had with him going to school or like being at home with family. And she was really thankful to like the cast and crew for being there to help him at such a young age. And so like just having that experience happen in Talking Horse, that's part of the reason why we're there. We want to be that outlet to help actors at any age be able to grow and develop and and build the relationships they need that will carry them past the theater. Ed, is there a moment that stands out for you in your long history with Talking Horse? You know, there are so many moments, but uh, since Shara is right here, I'm going to say when we did Black Pearl Sings at the theater, and uh, that was not a world premiere, but it was certainly a new play for Columbia audiences. I had taken Shara with me to see that play in Kansas City and then said to her, are you ready for this? (laughs) Shara, at that point, I don't think had ever had a lead role in a show, and look where that's taken her now. She has not only uh, blossomed as an actress and as a performer, but she's now really prepared to step up and lead an arts organization. And, And I'm not sure that even just those few years ago that she would have really believed all the places that she could go with her artistic endeavors and her artistic career before we did that show. I think it was a real stepping stone not only for her, but for for Talking Horse in general. Indeed, we are very glad, Rashara, that you are there and, and guiding the organization today. So, Ed, maybe as the president of the board, if someone contacted you and said, I've got $100,000 I'd like to donate to Talking Horse, what would be your priority on how to spend it? Well, after I got back from the emergency room for having a heart attack... <laughs> You know, we're, we're in the process of really wanting to upgrade some of our lighting and some of our technical aspects of the theater. And so I think we would focus some of the money on that. I think that we would look at trying to expand uh, the salaries of our staff who are woefully underpaid for what they do. They're part-time, but still they're woefully underpaid for what they do. And then I would love to be able to do some community outreach programs where maybe we, with each show, we're able to give away an entire house to people who might not have the money to always come to the theater and uh, kind of expand our role in the community with artistic outreach. I think that would be really exciting for us. That is a lovely idea. Well, we're almost out of time. So last question to Shara, what are you most excited about in the upcoming season? I mean, I'm excited about the entire (laughs) season. (laughs) <laughs> if I had to choose just one aspect, um, I'm really 
looking forward to final arrangements in June. Michelle Tyreen Johnson, she was the playwright for Green Book Wine Club Train Trip that we did in 2020. The only show we did in 2020. But she is the playwright for that show in June. And we placed that show specifically so that she would have the opportunity to come into Columbia and work with our cast and our crew. So um, I'm really excited about that opportunity. Oh, fantastic. Maybe she could drop into the Speaking of the Arts studio and and chat with me about it too. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'll leave that with you, Shara. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I left some packets of ginger cookies by the door, so I picked them up on the way out. And uh, thank you so much for dropping by. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Dawn, I am delighted to welcome you for the first time to the Speaking of the Arts studio. I have put up some holiday lights, so it's nice and twinkly for you. And I've I've got the fake fire on the monitor so we can, you know, feel like snuggly and festive. And I put out a mince pie for you. I don't know if you like mince pies. It's a very (laughs) English thing. (laughs) Well, you are here to talk about Orr Street Studios. So tell us a little bit about Orr Street and its history in the community and who uses it. Well, Orr Street is an interesting space. It was originally in 2006, a kind of a wreck down in the North Village area. And that area had been neglected. And Mark Timberlake, who still owns the building, he looked at his friend Chris Teeter, who was a sculptor and artist and still is, and said, what should I do with this place to help the North Village be a better place? So he and and Chris brainstormed and Mark decided finally, hey, let's create studio space for working artists that also includes space for a gallery and for people to get together and gather for events. But let's keep it looking industrial so it still has a nod to the history of the area. So that's how that came about. And how many artists do you have there today? Currently, we have 27 artists and we have 21 studio spaces of varying sizes. You have not been there terribly long, what, four or five months, something like that? Yeah, I'm going into my sixth month. So my first day was July 1st. So in the past six months, as you look back and think about all the events that have happened or the moments or the conversations, what is a moment that really stands out to you where you thought, this is why your street's here, a moment of magic? Well, there are so many. And I have to say, I I am so grateful to be a part of Orr Street. I'd known about it. My husband's from here, was born and raised, and we've been together since 1986 And I've visited Columbia for years, so I always knew about the North Village and what's happening here. But I think a moment for me that really stands out is when I was put in charge of acquiring applicants for our Black Artists in Residence program. And I had no idea how it would go. I put out the invite and the application, and we had so many applicants twice as much as we did the first year. And they were all so good. The work was good. They were interesting, caring, thoughtful people. And it made our committee's job very difficult. But it made me realize how powerful this community is, not just in the arts, but in theater and music and and everything that we have here, writers, because these artists are all multifaceted. So... I'm grateful I live here now. And that was a moment when I was putting those 
portfolios together on paper, I thought, whoa, we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> so a $100,000 donation if someone came knocking on your door and said, Dawn, I want to make a massive donation to All Street Studios. How would you best spend it, do you think? I think, and I hope the board will agree with me when they hear this, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, expanding what we offer with our working space for um, emerging artists of all kinds and expand the ability for us to actually sponsor other nonprofits with their meetings, with their events, and with public events that are free for the public so they can connect with the arts. So an example would be the Equity Lab. We offered the space to them for free and representatives from nonprofits all over the area came and shared their experiences. We also have our second Saturday for Kids events. We usually do that every other month. And it is, again, another free workshop-based event for children of all ages from, from toddler on up to 18 to come and learn how to do different types of art from artists and it's just been a, a wonderful thing so in, in including the community more and more inside of or street of course we have our individual artists that are part of or street we try to support them as much as possible we keep the rents very very low below market rate so that they can continue to do the work they they do easily and and being able to continue to do that as well but mostly opening the space for more artists and more of the community to get engaged with each other, especially now that COVID is done. Is there anything coming up in the beginning of next year that you are particularly excited about? Oh, many, many, many things. Currently, we have a show that will run through January, which is a show, a group show for all of our artists inside the studios and our board members. And it's such a dynamic show. So that runs through January. And we have our first Friday events, of course, every first Friday, where we have a gallery opening. And that's always very dynamic and great. And then in February, we have our new annual Black History Month and our four current residents, Asia Long, William Wallace, Sean, Sergio Slayer, Tostin, and Kaya are all part of the committee and Kenny Green. And we're trying to pull as many speakers and events and fun things into our space so we can engage the community in discussion and we'll have other things like that. I mean, the whole year is just going to be amazing. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I'm glad you are there, Dawn, and I hope we have a chance to catch up more in 2023. But for now, thank you so much for uh, dropping in to tell us about All Street Studios. Uh, thank you so much, Diana. I really appreciate it and uh, wish everyone a very happy new year. Whew, phew, six down, three to go. I think I need a little eggnog refreshment at this point in time. Our next stop is to access art. So if you are sitting comfortably, let's carry on. Welcome back to the Speaking of the Arts studio, Shauna. I thought we would meet today down in the Speaking of the Arts craft studio, which is the only place in the building I allow glitter, and only at this one time <laughs> of year, because as we all know, glitter doesn't go away for the rest of the year. It just stays there. No, it never, it, it never dies. It's always there. <laughs> so, Shauna, tell us about Access Arts and your history in the community and the people you serve. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Access Arts, uh, we were founded in 1971. So we we just celebrated our 51st birthday this year. Woo. Um, yeah. Woohoo. Older than me. I have to say that. <laughs> Younger than me, unfortunately. But... <laughs> But yeah, our mission is to provide an inclusive space for everyone to enjoy art making together. We have students from all walks of life, adults, kids, all income levels, people with disabilities, folks who've been making art for decades and people experimenting with something for the very first time. We love that art is the thing that brings everyone together. So when you look back over your many years at Access Arts, gosh, is it a decade or more now? Yeah. Wow. Good memory. Uh, yeah. This past month, I have my, me personally, I've been here 10 years now. Yeah. Well, well, well happy anniversary <laughs> for that. But looking back over this past decade, what has been a moment, and I'm sure you've had many of these, but tell us about a moment where you really saw the magic of Access Arts and, and you thought, I'm so happy that I do what I do. Wow. Yeah. There's definitely lots of those moments. Well, I guess the one that comes to mind is one that just happened recently. So we we offer kids art camps on the days that Columbia Public Schools are closed. And recently we had a new student who started coming. He's on the spectrum and has very limited verbal communication skills. So new and, and also new environments are really challenging for him. So on the very first day he came, he was pretty agitated and it took some time, but our teachers eventually were able to connect with him using music. And since then, he's been here, I think, five different days now. And since then, they've been creating art projects for him that explore musical instruments and the mechanics of how they work. And this little guy has an amazing ability to understand and remember how all these parts of the instruments work together to create a sound. And a few weeks ago, we got to see him making these very intricate drawings of a ukulele. And he was sharing those with the rest of the class. So it was really beautiful in, in two different ways. It was great to see him being so empowered and expressing himself freely and being able to communicate what he loves. But then it was also really amazing to see the other kids get excited and celebrate it with him. So, yeah, that kind of togetherness doesn't happen for him very often. So it was wonderful to be a part of making that possible for him. Hmm. And if someone gave you $100,000, well, you, someone gave Access Arts $100,000. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, <laughs> what would be your priority? How would you spend that? I think I would probably use it to leverage more money, uh, honestly. We, we've been wanting to build a new building. We need more space. We're completely outgrowing the building that we have. And so I would probably invest that money and try to leverage it to ma get matching donations or grants for a startup fund to, to build a new building. Didn't you move a little while ago? You opened a ceramic studio somewhere else in mm -hmm. town, right? Has, has everything moved over there? Or are you still partly off Old 63 and partly on the new campus? We're in both locations. Yeah, uh, we have a 
satellite facility over off of North Stadium. We're still also in our original building in the Benton Stevens neighborhood. That new building is a temporary leased space. Uh, we don't own it, and it it already also is too small. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> Okay, capital campaign coming to access us. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So before we close, what have you got coming up next year that you are super excited about? Personally, I really love our artist in residence program. And I'm, I'm super stoked because this coming February, the ceramic artist in residence that we currently have and myself, we're going to be taking part in this very new, innovative uh, technique that of firing clay that we don't think anyone has ever done before. So wow. we're, yeah, we're, we're trying not to spill the beans yet because <laughs> <laughs> if it all goes bad, but no, we're, we're excited. We're, we're going to be doing this firing. We're documenting it on film with a little short documentary. And then we're going to be taking those results up to a national conference in Ohio in March. And so I love the residents watching what they're doing and and living vicariously through them. But uh, this time I get to be a part of it. And I'm really excited about that. Well, I hope you will come back and spill the beans on Speaking of the Arts. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) If all goes well, I would love to. (laughs) Shona Johnson, thank you so much for taking time to tell us about Access Arts and happy holidays. Thanks, Diana. Emily Edgington Andrews, I am delighted to welcome you You're for your inaugural visit to the Speaking of the Arts studio, for which I apologise. I don't know I how know. I have not had you here before. <laughs> oh, I'm so honoured to be here. Well, I put out the Christmas decorations for you, so it's nice and festive here in the studio. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the Choral Arts Alliance of Missouri and your history in the community and, and what you do. So Coral Arts Alliance of Missouri, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, and our entire mission is to provide choral programming and education to mid-Missouri. So we offer all different types of ensembles for the littles and those that I like to call the most seasoned singers, those with lots and lots of years of experience of singing. And we even have a professional subset choral ensemble called Prometheus. So we offer lots of different types of choral ensembles, and then we put on various programs or educational events, creating choral music opportunities here in mid-Missouri. So it's not just Columbia. This is sort of our home, but we we absolutely reach um, well beyond our oldest ensemble is Columbia Chorale. And this year we're 44 years old. And that is our mixed ensemble for adult voices. So it's a non-audition group and it's open to anyone who loves to sing, who's looking for a community, looking for an outlet. And that's um, what we provide. We do offer a youth choir subset. And that was something that when I came on board as the artistic director 10 years ago, that was something really important to me that we also create an opportunity for our youth that would serve as something in addition to what they were um, receiving in their school choirs or providing 
receiving an outlet if they weren't receiving that in their school education. Our youth choir subset is called Columbia Youth Choirs, and this year we are 10 years old, which is really exciting. We also have the Community Gospel Choir open to all voices, and that's dedicated to the gospel tradition. And then we have an audition group called Columbia Chamber Choir that's for adults, and that's an audition group. So we offer lots of different types of choirs, all individuals who are looking for a place. Fantastic. Wow, I didn't know you had such a lot going on. So with all of that going on, this is going to be a very hard question to answer, but is there a moment that stands out for you during your time with the organization where you thought, wow, this is amazing. This is why I do it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So like you said, there, (laughs) I mean, gosh, there are so many meaningful and magical moments over the years. And I've witnessed that transformative power that music can have on an individual in both big ways and small. And they use music as the weekly therapy. I can't tell you how many people have told me that that rehearsal that one day or that piece of music I come back to and I listen to and I sing and it helps me get through this difficult time. But one of my favorite programs that we produce every year is our annual Unity Concert. And that is a concert that celebrates the depth and importance of gospel music within the choral tradition and honors the teachings and impact of Martin Luther King Jr. And this concert's always a highlight for me because of the powerful nature of it, both as a singer as well as an audience member. Everybody in the room sort of feels this energy and this connectedness. But I remember this one particular year where the children, we have a a kid's gospel choir, and they were singing, lift every voice and sing. And everyone was standing and and the children were singing. And I was standing on the end of an aisle in the front. And I just turned and I watched the kids and I watched the rest of the audience. And my eyes just welled up with tears, just this feeling of um, such like love and solidarity And the fact that all these different people, I mean, there were hundreds of people in this room in First Presbyterian Church, all different ages, all walks of life, yet we were coming together and um, there was just this like feeling of hope. And it, it that that to me was was definitely one of those like, okay, I'm going to remember this this feeling for a long time. The power of music. Yeah. Love wins. So $100,000, it's in your bank account from an anonymous <laughs> donor. <laughs> what do you do oh. with it? What a gift. (laughs) What a gift. Um, We are so grassroots in so many ways. You know, we operate on the shoestring budget because accessibility is really important to us. So we offer super low tuition rates. We offer tons of scholarships if people can't pay, but they just want to sing, like, we'll find a way to support them. And so having a gift of $100,000, like, oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, after crying, um, (laughs) I would clean myself up. So I couldn't do this with 100000 but my, like, far-off dream. I say this every year to our board, like I would just love to have a home, a physical building, a center for choral arts and and performing arts, you know, just truly like state-of-the-art building that's designed to support choral and other types of musical performances. I envision like a playground and a kitchen and dining area and um, rehearsal spaces. But $100,000 couldn't do that. But what it could do is help us continue in the direction that, that we're headed. You know, one of our desires is to offer satellite youth choirs. So right now we are housed, our youth choirs are housed on Sundays at Columbia Independent School. Shout out to CIS. We appreciate them so much for um, providing that space for us. But we know that we can't reach every child who desires to sing. And so to be able to offer these satellite programs where we can come to the students in areas that are underserved, that would definitely, that $100,000 could help those types of ideas come to fruition. 
Okay, so really we're asking like a $5 million anonymous donation. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would solve it all. Exactly. Emily, thank you so much for dropping into the Speaking of the Arts studio. And I hope that yes. you will come back in 2023 and tell us more about your program and things that are coming up. I would love that. Thank you so much for the invitation. Hello, Q2. Oh, hello. Let me close the door here. Close the door on the way into the studio. Stay out. You ruffians. <laughs> <laughs> They're all like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm talking to the queen. They're like, okay. There's always hangers on outside the Speaking of the Arts studio. I, I right? have to, sometimes I just throw them crusts of bread and ask them just to exactly. move down the street exactly. a little bit. <laughs> but today, as I have you here, I have baked some gingerbread, little gingerbread men for Delicious. you. And I did put out some mulled wine. I figured you might be a mulled wine girl. I would love some. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, we had such a short time together today. And as everybody who listens to the show knows, you and I can talk for a long time. And even though I know the answer to these questions, I'm going to ask you for everybody else. So first of all, Kelsey, tell us about the Columbia Art League and how long it's been in the community and who you serve. All right. The Columbia Art League has been in the community since 1959. Which is a very long time, I know. <laughs> and um, we serve artists and non-artists, art appreciators in the community, ages 5 to 105 plus. So we help artists along the way in all the iterations of their being an artist. So teaching them classes, having a space for them to show their work. We educate the people in the community about art and why it's important to support it. So we do all of those things. Have you really had a 105-year-old artist? No, but I'm waiting. <laughs> Because I know there was a 100-year-old artist back in my day. Yes, yes. But 105. That, okay. I don't really want to cap it, you know, but we've got to start somewhere. So Exactly. So anybody 105 plus who exactly. fancies doing some art, you could change the record books if you just go down and, and join the Columbia Art League in some fashion. <laughs> so thinking back over your three yes. and change years at the Columbia Art League, tell me about a moment that for you – really makes you glad you do what you do when you saw the magic of the Columbia Art League? I think actually I've seen many and it's always moments like when somebody buys their first work of art or when an artist first shows a piece of art and somebody buys it. Those are the magical things that happen luckily often here. But I was thinking about one in particular with Kay Foley who just recently had her first solo show in the Central Bank hallway that we curate And she has been an artist who's long exhibited here. However, she's never done a whole series of paintings. This is new for her. She's usually doing collage. So to see all of this work that she's worked on for so long and really just let herself go and be free and then to have a show, she just was so tickled and like the work is really good. And it's just so nice to see someone who switched gears And the payoff is this beautiful work and people are buying it. So it's just like, it's appreciated on all levels. And I just love that we were, I was able to like walk with her for part of that journey. I loved too the moments when I saw somebody who was basically a hobbyist. They didn't really believe in themselves Mm. as an artist. They'd been busy in their spare guest room quietly doing their art. (laughs) And then they brought it into the gallery and either I said something or somebody else standing next to them said, wow. And in that moment, they became an artist. And it's like you just saw this artist being born right before your eyes. Those, they, I've got goosebumps right now. Actually, yeah, just exactly. About no, that. 
<laughs> exactly. I mean, me too. And that's exactly right. I mean, and I love that that happens often here. That's not, again, not a standalone thing. It happens quite often, which is wonderful. So $100,000 would be a huge bonus to the Columbia Art League. If somebody were to call you up today and say, here is $100,000, Kelsey, <laughs> how would you use it? I would absolutely use it for oh, so much money and so wonderful. And yes, please. <laughs> um, I would. You're welcome. <laughs> I would start thinking about a capital campaign to move the Art League permanently into its own space and own building so that we could expand our classroom area a little bit, you know, just make sure that we had a place where we could really make it our own because this is a wonderful space. But to really be able to like build out a space to what you want and our classroom is small and we have lots of classes and so much more we could do there. So mm. that's that's probably what I would do is kind of start that effort. I love that. I would happily donate to that capital <laughs> campaign. Yes. So when you look back over the last year, obviously this was your first art in the park, the third one you'd planned, but the first one that actually happened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what has been the highlight of the past year? I mean, definitely art in the park. Could I say anything else? No, I mean, certainly not to you, but also to no one else. Because, I mean, it really was one of those things where it's not that I didn't believe because I had been to them and I volunteered and things, but I really was sort of like, this is a lot of effort and it feels mm -hmm. really hard. And then having the sadness of him being, you know, having to cancel two in a row and then to have the weekend happen and to have it be so mad. I mean, it was so magical underline 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 like it just it really was like I remember I mean we had that conversation about like take some time go stand on the hill and look at what you've done mm. those were your important words to me and I was on a golf cart but still it's on the top of the hill and I was looking down at everything and I thought wow check this is amazing yeah I was like she was right <laughs> yeah okay great Diana but also but but really just like the magic of what's happening people hugging each other who hadn't seen each other forever artists smiling because they had already sold so much of their work I mean people came to support and it was really really wonderful you know and then it was like oh now I have to go deal with that raccoon in the dumpster or whatever but it was very very magical. And I will say it was a very cute raccoon in the dumpster. I, I did stand sweet. and look at it yeah. for a while. Well, our time is up, Kelsey, for today. But I thank you so much for talking about the Columbia Art League. And, uh, and it's always fun for me to share our, our joint past together. Yes. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can always connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to all my guests this evening. Alex George, Ayaka Suruta, Corey Dunn, Shauna Johnson, Kelsey Hammond, Matt Schacht, Dawn Warren, Ed Hansen, Rashara Knight and Emily Edgington-Andrews. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty Missouri! Missouri.